Welcome to the hashtag Faring Pod. At Faring, people come first. My name is Zoya Mabuto Mogoditwa, and I am joined in today's podcast by Dr. McNeil, all the way from Pulukwane in Dimpopo. Uh, Dr. McNeil, a warm welcome to you, and I'll give you an opportunity shortly uh, to introduce yourself. In this episode, we are going to be discussing postpartum hemorrhage, a serious but rare condition that typically affects women after they have delivered. Uh, Dr. McNeil, perhaps just to hand over to you to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. I'm Dr. A.O. McNeil. I'm a specialist obstetrician and gynecologist. I've been in practice for almost 20 years, worked for the government, and right now I'm in full-time private practice. And I work with the Limpopo Medic Clinic and the Polotionet Care. Thank you so much. And I think we are in good hands to be having this conversation today. Maybe let's start with just an explanation around what postpartum hemorrhage, also known as PPH, is. Postpartum hemorrhage is um, when a woman delivers, we expect the bleeding to stop. But when the bleeding does not stop, we use quantities to define what postpartum hemorrhage is. And for Vaginal deliveries, we use 500 mils, and at cesarean section, we use 1,000 mils. However, any bleeding that is severe enough to compromise the cardiovascular status of a patient constitutes postpartum hemorrhage. I'm curious about how common, you know, this condition is. Um, I was sharing with you just ahead of our session that I've just uh, had a baby and, you know, just really grateful that I didn't have complications. But how common is this condition? Uh, you know, typically, what are the statistics around how many pregnant women are affected by PPH? The rate of pickup of PPH is actually determined by how vigilant the health care facility is. And in places where people really estimate blood loss, it is about 10.8% of all live births. So I want to better understand that. When you say it's about 10.8% of all sort of live births and you, you're connecting it to how vigilant, you know, the care providers would be, I'm just a little bit confused. So are we saying that this would typically occur with most women or, or are we saying that this, this, this happens in situations where there is a lack of vigilance um, in terms of the care that's been offered? I just want to better understand. Yes, if the healthcare facility is not that vigilant, Sometimes they underreport postpartum hemorrhage. And we must remember it's not all postpartum hemorrhage that will eventually lead to death. But if you are very vigilant, your pickup rate is higher and the treatment becomes better because you are able to intervene as quickly as possible. Okay. So, I mean, when I asked you about, you know, what is postpartum hemorrhage, one, one of the things you spoke about was how, you know, you typically would measure the, the blood loss, the amount of, of blood a woman has lost, and you gave me quantities for sort of a normal delivery versus a C-section delivery. But when we talk about PPH, we're saying it's a serious condition, and I'm curious about, you know, what makes PPH dangerous? And I think you alluded to it, but, but let's just go there. Why, why are we saying that it's, it's quite serious? What makes it a, a dangerous condition? It is the most common cause of maternal death worldwide. It accounts for 
30% of all the women who die at delivery or around delivery, the six weeks after delivery. And the most important thing about this is that 80% of the women who die from postpartum hemorrhage are actually preventable. These deaths can be prevented. So these are unnecessary deaths mm-hmm. that we are dealing with. And anything that kills a woman that from childbirth is so serious that most countries are judged by the maternal mortality ratio. And in South Africa, we are trying to drop that ratio. And that's why the emphasis is on postpartum hemorrhage because it is still in our countries is the second greatest killer, but worldwide it's number one. Yeah. And and so doctor, maybe just to assist somebody who who's listening, because you, you talk about how, you know, whilst we hear that the statistics are quite high, this is something that can also be I mean, it can be prevented. The deaths from PPH can be prevented and uh, you know, based on uh, the vigilance and the type of care that's provided to the person who's experiencing the problem. So so maybe let's talk a little bit around what are the symptoms of, of PPH? Uh and when would PPH typically occur? Yeah, PPH is divided into primary PPH and secondary PPH. Primary PPH meaning that the woman bleeds within the first 24 hours of delivery and secondary PPH after 24 hours. That classification is important because the initial, the symptom of PPH is bleeding. The woman will tell you maybe she has delivered and you put her in another room. No, doctor or nurse, I'm bleeding. And once the woman is bleeding, don't cover her up. Let's estimate. Let's see how much bleeding is this bleeding. Is it a normal blood? If it is more than 500 mils, we now initiate all the steps necessary to prevent it from becoming a severe postpartum hemorrhage. And we'll come to some of those steps a little bit later. But I hear the primary PPH, which typically would happen, I imagine, while somebody is still in the hospital. And so doctors would necessarily be able to attend to them. I'm curious about what might happen in the instance where somebody has been discharged from the hospital and they experience this this nonstop bleeding. What would they need to do in that instance? Once somebody experiences bleeding that is unusual, they should go back to the center where they delivered as soon as possible, almost immediately, because a lot of the deaths that we have from people who have secondary PPH are people who you know, go home and the people say, no, and this is how we bleed. And so education is important. The patient needs to know that mm. this is not normal. And the patient needs to be educated from the primary center of delivery that, look, if you experience this, if you feel dizzy, if you have a headache, if you cannot see clearly, go back to the hospital. Mm. And doctor, would you say that there are women who are more likely to get PPH uh, on the basis of any underlying conditions? So could there be underlying conditions that make some women more likely to experience PPH than others? Yes. Um, one of them is age. When we, Because of the lifestyle now, people tend to deliver older. Death. The other factors include having multiple births. If you have delivered maybe four or five times, if you are carrying a set of twin pregnancies, if you have had PPH in the past, if you have, you are anemic at the time you are pregnant, if you have 
comorbidities that could lead you to bleeding or you are taking certain medications which is useful for the pregnancy but may lead to PPH. So this can all predispose you to having PPH in the ongoing pregnancy. And and so, Doctor, would you then recommend that, um, you know, I, I imagine I'm consulting with yourself as, as a gynecologist and obstetrician. Would, would I need to then obviously share or disclose this information up front in order for you to, to almost put preventative measures in place? Is there such a thing as putting preventative measures in place uh, for somebody who, yes. who has some of these risk factors? People who have these risk factors, if you go into details to their previous history, the previous pregnancies, some of them will tell you the last pregnancy I was transfused, two units of blood or three units. That is PPH. You need to find out why, what happened. If they tell you you've had a cesarean section, you ask them how long was your labor. If you take a detailed history of the past obstetric history, there is a saying in obstetrics, Bad things that have happened before in the past are likely to happen again in the present. Mm. And you as the caregiver must dig into this so that you can get information. When you get this information, you do what the, the, the Boy Scout do. You be prepared. Yes. And that's the most important thing with PPH. Be prepared. A lot of times nothing would happen and you just have a normal delivery. But if something do happen, you are prepared. Hmm. I think I like that. Again, it's just that, you know, you've got to be open. You've got to disclose sort of your, your history, um, any medical conditions. I mean, you made mention of age and I was wondering, does this mean older age? Uh, you weren't specific there. I think you just sort of said, you know, age could be one of the risk factors. Are we saying the older a person is, the more sort of, um, this poses a risk? Yes. It, it, now we are seeing women who are falling pregnant after 35 even after 40. And with the advent of IVF, we are having, I had a 52-year-old woman who delivered two months ago. When these kind of patients come into labor and they are insisting, no, I want to deliver in a particular way, sometimes we have to advise them that, no, it will be safer to do this because when you are older, your body and your cardiovascular may not be able to handle the effects of postpartum hemorrhage. Mm. Okay, so so doctor, we've spoken to, uh, you know, some of the risk factors involved. Uh, you did allude earlier, you know, to the fact that this is a, a condition, if I can call it that, that for the most part can be treated, and in fact, we can avoid some of those unnecessary deaths um, that happen when we aren't prepared, like those Boy Scouts. So, what are some of the treatments that are available for PPH? Well, from the antenatal care that we do. You must pick up patients who are anemic. And if they need to be treated, you start treating the anemia before they go into labor. When they go into labor, we must repeat our blood um, test, our HB, to know is this woman coming into labor already anemic? If they are, you make sure that the facility you are using, blood is cross-matched and kept in readiness. We make sure that we use the pathogram properly so that we don't um, have a prolonged labor, as it were. And once the patient delivers, we go straight to do a, an active management of the third stage and give the oxytokics and all those agents and deliver the placenta properly. This will help to reduce the incidence of postpartum hemorrhage.
Thank you so much. And of course, when we're talking to anemia doctor, we're talking to somebody who typically is suffering from low levels of iron. Am I, am I correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that's important, I think. Doctor, I want to backtrack a little bit. Uh, and I think, and I think it's important for us to actually just, um, make it, make it easy for all of us to, to get a sense of, of what happens when a person actually is experiencing postpartum hemorrhaging. Uh, what what actually happens physically? Take me through that process because I think that's important to better understand. You made mention of the placenta. You talk about a uterus, etc. What's actually physically happening to the body? You see, a lot of people miss postpartum hemorrhage because when you are pregnant, your body is prepared for blood loss, and in pregnancy, all the signs of blood loss—they are the pallor, the confusion. These are late signs because a woman can lose up to 35% of her circulating blood volume before these symptoms will start to appear. But the caregiver must be on the alert. Once the blood loss is estimated, you can start to initiate all the treatment before the symptoms that you have mentioned, the pale, the dizziness, and all those. These are late signs when a woman has just delivered. So, but at any given point where you pick up even the slightest of these symptoms, you must start acting on them. And doctor, maybe again, it's just for me to get a sense of what would cause the excessive bleeding. So, so what would be the cause of me continuing to bleed or bleeding more than what I typically am expected to bleed after I've delivered or after I've, I've had my C-section? What would be the cause of that? What's happening physically that leads to the excessive bleeding? Sometimes the placenta is retained, sometimes the labor is prolonged and the uterus is unable to contract properly after the delivery. Sometimes there are injuries, that lacerations that happen to the genital tract, the woman tears, and sometimes the woman was actually, the placenta separated what we call abruptio placente, and some women probably have been bleeding before pregnancy. Take, for instance, if a woman has a placenta previa, she's a candidate for postpartum hemorrhage because she has bled antenatally. It's unlikely for that bleeding to stop. So for that type of patient, the care should be different. And if you take, for instance, you want to do a placenta previa, the choice of where to deliver, especially if you're delivering in public hospital, should be taken to the highest level, not just at a lower level hospital. Okay, so so doctor, um, a woman's just experienced PPH in her first pregnancy. I imagine that this could be quite traumatic, particularly in instances where they don't get that adequate or, or vigilant sort of care. Um, you know, what what is some of the, and I'll call it the psychological impact of this, you know, it, does this have an impact in terms of her family, um, her psychological well-being? And, and what would your sort of recommendations be for how she could, you know, recover from this in a psychological sense? When we have the severe postpartum hemorrhage where you have excessive blood loss, it can be very scary both for the caregiver and for the patient. And everybody's running all around and trying to save your life. And you find yourself in theater. You haven't seen your baby. You recover in ICU. Then you you start asking, is my baby fine? So bonding is affected in the very first place. Then, because we, as obstetrician, call it near-miss, and near-miss situation affects 
everybody, even the caregiver, because your patient is in ICU, relatives cannot see the patient, the husband doesn't really know what's happening, is my wife going to be okay? And some people may have long-time sequel. Some people psychological may never completely recover. But you see, as obstetricians, we are busy treating the physical, what we can mm. see. The most important thing at that time is to keep the patient alive. But when mm. this patient has survived, I think it's good to also sometimes, like I do, you involve the psychologist too, so that post-traumatic stress syndrome and you know, the anxieties that comes with such a life-threatening situation does not have a long-term effect on that individual. And doctor, what would the typical sort of recovery period or phase look like? I mean, I'm imagining this this woman who's just had, you know, her first baby and then is unable to, as you correctly say, uh, you know, bond with that baby. So, 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 you know, typically how long is she in this recovery phase and when does she eventually get to see her baby to initiate that bonding process, which I know is all important? Um, time is not of essence at, because it depends on how severe and what were the ramifications of treatment that she had. Did she go to theater? Did she have an open surgery? Was um, blood transfused? Was she unconscious? Did she gain consciousness? So all of those things you, you have to individualize. Mm. But in most centers where anticipation is good, just um, treating the usual, repairing the necessary, and the patient will recover. However, we have seen cases where some patients are actually five days to a week before they completely recover and get to see their babies. I mean, just listening to this, I mean, it suggests to me that this is actually quite a, a, a stressful period for all involved, right from the sort of hospital staff or caregivers uh, to, to the person themselves, as well as, you know, the family surrounding them at that time. And maybe is there guidance or advice we could give to, to members of the family, whether this is, you know, a father to the child or some kind of support to that person? Any, anything you'd offer to them, uh, you know, if, they're, if they find themselves in this situation? Well, the responsibility of the caregiver primarily is to give the husband. But sometimes because of our African setting, the old family wants information. So sometimes after you have spoken to the father explaining the situation, his older brother comes and tries to call your side. While you are still busy trying to save a life, you are also trying to give information. But if you don't give information, the family is in the dark. And then sometimes they look at you, the caregiver, and think, ah, why is it, is he sidelining us? And the first thing that crops to mind is, is she going to make it? Will she die? If she dies, what's going to happen to this baby? And you must remember, Zoya, the death of a woman is different from the death of a man. When a man dies, yes, it's maybe a husband dies and a father. But when a woman dies... A, a caregiver has died, an educator has died, a wife has died, a person who cares for the next generation has died, a workforce has died. So the ramification of a woman's death is, is different from that of a man because let's say she has five children 
in our setting, you know, the man will marry. What happens to those five children after she has died? So the death of one woman is more than the death of just one person. It's the death of a whole nation, the death of things that the ramifications sometimes we don't understand. So mm-hmm. yeah, take, for instance, the taste of food that you, the amount of salt you eat now is determined by your mother was determined by your mother. The things that you like and you don't like. Because women, they are always there to raise the next generation. So it's not just easy to allow a woman to die when she's trying to do something as natural as giving birth to the next generation. What you've just said is so profound, Doctor. I'm sitting here and I'm tearing up, actually. Because I think, I mean, I hear it. Uh, that, you know, the death of, of a woman is so big because of the role that we occupy in our societies, uh, whether we're sort of mothering children, um, you know, whether we're sort of doing, you know, other, other other aspects of our lives in the community, in our professional setups, etc. So I just want to appreciate that comment uh, from you. And, and again, uh, you know, honor the role that you play, um, you know, in your, in your professional life uh, as somebody who does this work. Doctor, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, somebody who has, experienced or suffered from a PPH um, and as a result of that had to have a hysterectomy. And what this means, of course, is that they're no longer able to have children. What could we offer to them? You know, they're also listening to this. They've gone through the harrowing experience and the result has been that they're no longer able to have children. And again, I'm stepping more into sort of the caregiving from a psychological perspective side and not so much the physical. But is there anything you'd offer to that to that person who's listening? The first thing that that person should do is be grateful that they are alive. Because um, um, the other year, um, last year, we had almost 700 deaths in this country from PPH. So the first thing is have that sense of gratitude that you are alive. And then look at the fact that the caregivers who were taking care of you were doing all within their capacity to make sure that you did not die. And if your child survived and you have lost your womb, there are other things that can be done if you still want more children, but I think this is not the setting to discuss all of that, but it is possible to still have like surrogacy and all that. So we're in 2022, we, it, it, all hope is not lost. But the first thing you must appreciate and let the patient recognize is that there should be a sense of gratitude. Mm-hmm. I know in, in modern obstetrics, everybody wants to blame the obstetrician to say, no, you took out my... But that's why it is good to involve the husband and the whole family during when that care was being given. And after the care, if hysterectomy was done, a woman should be should be sent to see a psychologist because I always tell my male colleagues, when a woman loses her womb, you may not understand the whole ramification of it. Some people feel like they've lost their womanhood, although that's not completely Mm. true. But we need Mm. to bring them to understand that, look, being a woman is more than just owning a womb. There are a lot of other things that women do and they can do well, even if they don't have a, a womb in place. And I think that last point is is critically important. You know, having had conversations with women who, for whatever reason, have had to have hysterectomies, whether by choice or not, um, but the sense that there's a part of their womanhood 
uh, that feels as though it has been lost. So I think it's an important point to emphasize. But, but what, I'm, what I'm hearing you say is really just sort of gratitude, you know, for life and gratitude that one has, 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 uh, you know, has their life. I think it's important. And then additional to that, I think, you know, not all is lost. There are, you know, a myriad of other options that then become available, uh, you know, for somebody to explore. So, so, Doctor, you know, as we as we prepare to wrap the conversation up, uh, you know, are there any sort of parting comments? Um, is there anything that, uh, you know, if you're sort of thinking about the person who's listening to this, who's had the experience, uh, or somebody who says, I want to do whatever is necessary to prevent this, any last words or parting comments from you? To prevent postpartum hemorrhage, we need to involve the whole community. The government needs to be involved. When you're pregnant, you should book early. When there are diseases that as comorbidities exist, you should disclose them. As health caregivers, nurses, at whatever level, if you think that this patient's care should not be in this center, prompt transfer should be done. Centers that give care to this type of women who may have postpartum marriage should be prepared. Doctors, young doctors, nurses should be trained. Thank God we, we have the ESMO training, which is supposed to do that. And I hope it is ongoing, not just something we do on hard hoc basis. Postpartum hemorrhage is a preventable disease. Mm. And no woman should be allowed to die from a condition that is 80% avoidable. Thank you. Thank you so much, Doctor. And I know I said we're closing with that, but just something in, 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 in my heart and in my mind says, you know, is there, is there a, a success story that maybe you could share with us, an experience that was, you know, uh, and, and maybe you have multiple of these, but is there a story that comes to mind that, that you'd love to share with those who are listening? Yes, I had a patient who had a placenta in Crater two months ago. And then we couldn't, we didn't know before the cesarean section. At cesarean section, she was bleeding so rapidly that we had to switch from a spinal anesthesia to general anesthesia. She was 42 years old at the time. We, I took out the womb after we delivered the baby because the, all the techniques we tried to do initially we thought was successful, but when she was transferred to the recovery area, she kept on bleeding. So we were still in theater. We took her back and we took out the womb. She was in ICU. She had eight units of blood. She was intubated. She was extubated after 48 hours. Uh, the husband was involved at all stage. Eventually, because I, I see her at my Bokum outstation where I do a satellite, where I have a satellite practice. And when she recovered, the first thing she said to me when I saw her after a week after was that, Doctor, I almost died. <laughs> and I said, well, you, you actually almost died. We, we all thought that we were going to lose her because, but luckily everything we were looking for at the time of the surgery was available and the blood and all the mm. components. When I saw after six weeks, she wanted because she has four kids. So this was just that last child that you want to have before you retire from childbirth. And she was like, 
I don't think even if I still have a womb, I will still want to have another baby. But mm. she had the talk with the psychologist, and it came out to be a success story. Ooh. And I'm tearing up again <laughs> because I think it is it is so real. I mean, this is the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Thank you for sharing, you know, that story. Um, I can imagine, you know, as she sort of opens her eyes and gauges with you and says, Doctor, I almost died, but I've lived. And I think for me, the biggest takeaway is that this is a preventable disease. And so, you know, we really have to be vigilant. And I think this is a message you have repeatedly um, emphasized throughout the conversation, you know, talking to the caregivers, the vigilance from that perspective, but also just you know, to those who have got what we described as those risk factors. So if you're somebody who's anemic, if you're somebody who's had multiple births um, and a host of other things that the doctor mentioned earlier in the conversation, I think it's important that you're open and honest and you disclose that um, so that, you know, we can be prepared. And I think that's 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 my biggest takeaway, is that we can prevent this disease, but we all must take a certain amount of responsibility. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Um, I think that this has been an amazing conversation with you. And then, of course, to those who are listening, thank you for listening, um, you know, to the hashtag FearingPod. Thank you so much to everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the hashtag FearingPod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under Fearing South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Fearing IBD Health Diary app today. The Fearing IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store.